Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. of Spring of Life, as I said earlier, and I'm so grateful for all of you, uh, some of you still coming in. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open them, and if you don't have a Bible, we've got some available on the way in that's a copy of the New Testament. Someone gave it to us, so it is so fun to give it back to you. Um, And if you want a whole Bible, like a complete Old and New Testament, we would love to give you one of those as well, so just get in touch. Uh, We're continuing week two of a brand new series that we started last week called Shocking Jesus, Um, And it's a big title, but really this um, crazy idea that we began talking about last week. In John chapter 1, we asked this question, what would it be like if we could actually know God? In the past couple of weeks, we've had a bunch of conversations with people in Portland, and maybe you're one of the folks that that's how you found out about today. You met one of our team members in an ice cream shirt, and someone had a conversation with you. And if you did, then the last question that we always ask is if you could know God personally Would you want to? And so we've been asking that question, what would it actually be like to meet God? And last week we began studying in the book of John chapter 1. And the most amazing thing to remember about the Bible is it's not just some religious history textbook, but it is the authentic, true account of how real people struggle to know a real God. And in the book of John chapter 1, we saw that God is big. He is the creator of everything that we see, and that's why sometimes he seems distant. And not only that, we saw that God is powerful. He is a light that can pierce through any darkness. And if there's some darkness in your life today, some hopelessness, some despair, some heartbreak, some hurt, it's so encouraging to know that God is a light that can break through all of that, but sometimes that makes him intimidating. And so the third thing that we saw together is that because Jesus has come, God is here. And so for the next few weeks together, we're going to be studying what would it look like to actually meet Jesus. The Gospels tell about 40 one-on-one encounters of people who met Jesus and had a personal meeting, like encounter with him. And so in the next few weeks, we're not going to do all 40, so don't worry, uh, but we are going to take on a few and take a look at them together. And so today, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 43, and I'll be there in just a moment. I'll tell you a quick story as you're turning. My wife and I moved here about a month and uh, a year and six months ago. And, um, but when I first moved here, I didn't have a car. So I'd always like, I was going to take the bus, but I just ended up calling Uber a lot. And so every Uber driver that would pick me up would say, what are you doing here? Like, why did you move to Portland? And we would say, yeah, we're going to start a church. And nine out of 10 times, people would say, that's really weird. Like another church in Portland, like a pastor in Portland, that's such a weird job. And all I could think was, I don't know, I've had weirder jobs. And maybe you have too. Uh, I can remember the hardest job that I ever did was keeping score at children's basketball games. (laughs) I can still remember the day when one mom challenged another mom to take things outside, and they did, and one came back bloody. It was weird. Um, And it was all over like a a nine-year-old's free throw. You know, the things in life that are important. Um, the The most threatening or scary job I ever had was I worked security at a drag race in the South. Now, if you ever want to do something challenging, don't plan a church in Portland. No, 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 no. Check a redneck styrofoam cooler for contraband Budweiser that he's not allowed to bring in and try to take it away. Um, (laughs) 
Nobody wanted to make America great again that day. <laughs> but the weirdest job I ever had uh, was actually the first business that my wife and I tried to start together. Uh, we had just gotten married. We were kind of like struggling to figure out what are we going to do. I was working a job in ministry. We were looking for some kind of supplemental income. And my father-in-law is just this character. I hope he's going to come into town and some of you will get to meet him. But he's this large, like, older Boston Italian guy, and he is a bull, and the world is the china shop. And uh, we just love him. We just love him. He gives me lots of good advice. Aaron, my son, listen to my wisdom. And so one day uh, over dinner, he, he just started to tell us, you know, guys, I, I've done really well in business, and I would like to help you guys get started in my business. And his business isn't just any business. He has actually made a great living in the field of as-seen-on-TV products. So it's the world of Snuggies and forearm forklifts and the quicker baking cooker and the samurai knives. And so he's like, here's what I'm going to do. You guys have this huge flea market nearby. We're going to rent you a booth. You're going to go in and you're going to set up and you're going to make millions of dollars. And we're like, for Jesus, yes, we will make that money. So um, we kind of, you know, get our stuff ready together. And this is a flea market in the south. And I can guarantee you there was no urban planning that went into its construction. Um, it was just a large, large metal building plopped down in the middle of a cow pasture. But um, an aggressive set of billboards up and down I-85 made sure that every weekend there was a huge crowd of people there. And um, this is the kind of place where you could buy a hot dog or a live chicken, whichever you wanted that day. Um, you, could buy, you could buy a vintage Nintendo system for your vintage video games, or a gun, or a taser, or nunchucks. Um, <laughs> and there we were, with our full-priced, as-seen-on-TV display right across the way from the knockoff Lacoste shirts. And uh, it was exciting. And um, we had this little TV that was sitting in our booth that like played con like the commercials on a loop. And they always start with, are you tired of doing that one thing that you have to do sometimes? Well, if you call now, you can solve it forever. And if you call now, we'll triple your offer. So they're just like playing loop after loop. Like we're always hearing these commercials, always hearing these offers. And people would always come over and they didn't want to buy our stuff. They always wanted to buy the TV. They're like, how much for the TV? You're like, can't have it. Um, but they would watch these commercials and they would just listen to these crazy claims. And they, they would ask us, does this stuff, you know, does it really work? Does it really work? Is it really going to cook my bacon in 60 seconds instead of 65 seconds? Like, is it really going to change my life? Because you get drawn into the claims. And so I would always ask my father-in-law, I'm like, you know, what should I tell them? Like, when they ask me, does it work? And he just smiles, this big Boston Italian grin. He goes, Aaron, here's what I always say. It works for me. <laughs> you know, skepticism can be healthy, can't it? We are the most marketed generation in history. We've heard more claims than any other group of people in all of humankind. And it would be crazy if we didn't begin to develop a healthy sense of skepticism. Skepticism can keep you from making a bad choice. Skepticism can teach you to seek wisdom. Skepticism can help you take a second glance at things. So there's nothing inherently wrong with skepticism on its own. But today we're here to talk about God. What about skepticism when it comes to God? 
Does God, if he exists, and so many of us here believe that he does, does he even allow skepticism? What does he do with a skeptic? What does he do with those who doubt? So exciting that today, in our second week of this series, we're going to find out. Let me just give you a little bit of of background. I mentioned a moment ago that we learned in John 1 that the world changed. There's this great claim about Christ. The most shocking thing about Jesus is that he never claimed to just be good. He always claimed to be God. And if that's true, it's the game changer of game changers. And so I leave it up to you to examine that claim. But today, we're going to watch him tell his story. For three years, Jesus Christ ministered on planet Earth. And in those three years, he turned the world upside down. In fact, even if you just believe he's a historical figure, he's still one of the most compelling, controversial historical figures in all of time. So, so far, before we get to the, the, the encounter we're going to read today, Jesus is meeting with his cousin, and you might have heard of him. His name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was in the wilderness, and he was building a following of people with a singular message. He was speaking to people in a Jewish context, and the Jewish people for centuries were waiting for a Savior, the one who would be the Messiah. The Jews were waiting for this person to come, and John the Baptist had a message. Get ready. He's coming. Get ready. He's coming. But in doing so, he had already built kind of his own following, his own ministry. The rescuer is coming, and then he meets Jesus. And John the Baptist sort of gets out of the way. He says, here he is. One of John's former followers was a man by the name of Andrew, who was so compelled upon meeting Jesus, so enraptured at the presence of this new person coming onto the scene in the fullness of his ministry. He goes and finds his friend Peter and brings him. And then Jesus goes to a place called Galilee and meets an individual named Philip. And we see a second theme. One friend brings another friend, and and maybe a friend brought you here today. We see that's a recurring biblical theme. And Philip brings his friend Nathaniel, And that's where we're picking up our story today in John chapter 1, verse 45. Would you read this in the Word with me? The Bible says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we'll leave that on the screens for just a moment because let me tell you what this is saying here. Like, honestly, Philip is making a shocking claim. When you and I are in church and we hear Moses, like, we sort of expect to talk about Moses, like, he's in the Bible, you know, we're going to talk about people in the Bible. But when Philip and Nathaniel talked about Moses, it was a huge deal. He was like the Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish culture, like, combined with Martin Luther King, combined with Alexander Hamilton, combined with Elvis. Like, when you talked about Moses, it was a big deal. And he says, here's the one the one that Moses was pointing to. He was laying it on the line, a shocking claim. And Nathaniel has an interesting response, just like a lot of people respond to people of faith. Nathaniel is not impressed. He says, can anything really good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And just leave that on the screen. We'll continue reading in just a moment. But I moved to Portland a few years ago, and I really found that people are competitive with their zip code around here. Uh, when I would first move to town, I would say, uh, yeah, I'm house hunting. And people would say, where are you house hunting? And I'd be like, I'm looking out in Beaverton. And uh, some people would go, oh. And some people would go, oh. Um, 
Or, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out with some people in Gresham. And some people are like, yeah, okay, great. And other people are like, mm-hmm. Um, southeast, uh, southwest. Oh, you mean heaven. Yes. <laughs> That's where we found ourselves. Um, but there is competition with zip code here, but to a much greater degree. Nazareth was really just this place that was okay to hate on. Um, even if you lived in a bad neighborhood, you could still make fun of Nazareth. It just wasn't a great place. Not a lot going on. So Nathaniel here is just expressing some easy skepticism. In verse 47, the plot thickens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let me pray for us and we'll learn a few quick things out of this passage. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your goodness. Bless these people here today and help them hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's some gorgeous things that we see here today. I spend a lot of time speaking to people who don't believe in Jesus, and it's one of my favorite activities because I get to learn new things when I listen. I get to hear great perspective, and I also get to really see what I actually believe. If Christianity was just a system, I think I would have walked away from it a long time ago because I'm not really great with systems. Uh, I'm an actor. I'm an artistic guy. I like change, and I like new things. And yet there is something so compelling about the person of Jesus that continues to draw me back. And I love to meet with people who consider themselves skeptics, agnostics, and atheists. And I see some beautiful things in this text. I see some gorgeous things that I would like to point out today. And the first is this. What does Jesus think about the skeptic? Jesus loves the skeptic. Jesus loves the skeptic. He's not afraid. He's not afraid of people with questions. He's not afraid of people with doubt. And so if you consider yourself a believer, you should never be threatened to have a conversation with anybody from any different background because Jesus is powerful enough for everything. He's powerful enough to guide us, to lead us, and to love through us. We see in the Word, in the New Living Translation, says the passage like this, Jesus told Nathanael, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Now, why would he call him that? Well, he's God, so maybe he knows his background. But I think specifically, he's referring to how honest Nathanael was with what he did and didn't believe. I think there's a lot of people in this world that when it comes to religion, think it's all about going the right place at the right time and saying the right things to the right people. But Jesus is saying here, a real relationship with me is more than just being correct. A real relationship means that you bring your questions to the table. It means that you bring your doubt, and that's allowed, because I'm powerful and I'm unafraid. It's not about a system that you can somehow deconstruct. I talk to people all the time, and they say, Aaron, what if I'm dealing with this? I'm like, if Jesus is a person, you can get him in on this conversation. You can ask him, do you think that Christ will stop holding the molecules of the universe together because you have a question of who he is? Bring it to the table. And we see the heart of God here. Sometimes really good questions are better than easy answers anyway. 
So bring your questions. The second thing that we see here, so beautiful, we see that Jesus knows the skeptic. That's big for me. Jesus knows the skeptic. I told you earlier that I have a background in acting, and I, I've just seen with so many of my fellow actors, why would people get up on a stage and put on weird makeup and wear strange costumes, and in one play, how to wear pointy elf ears? That was a high point. Why would we do that and go stand in front of strangers and belt out show tunes? Like, what is wrong with us? Why do people do that? And I think that there is this deep desire to be known, to be known, to know that we have a voice and to be seen. And I've also found with working from people from lots of different backgrounds, flea market booth employees, scorekeepers, doctors, lawyers, business people, that so many of us, the reason that we do what we do is because we also want to be known. We want to be known for something, but really deep down, we want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be acknowledged. And we want to be known. We see this gorgeous truth here in John chapter 1, 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Great question. One thing I like to always text back to people who text me is, new number, who dis? Just to mess with them, you know? Um, Jesus wasn't messing with Nathaniel here. He says, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip even found you. Now, Bible historians and theologians will tell you that we don't know exactly what this is referring to, but Nathaniel did. His reaction proves that he did. His reaction proves that um, even though we don't know why this was special moment to Nathaniel, maybe he was praying and asking God to see something real. Maybe he was under the fig tree having a heartbroken moment, like just wondering if anyone was out there listening. Maybe he was under the fig tree just praying for truth. Maybe he was just eating figs. We don't know. But we do know that Nathaniel knew why that was important. And I think that's really cool. As I walk through a city like Portland, I walk by people who are um, living outdoors, sleeping outside, and my heart breaks for that. And I just remember what the Bible says in Psalm 34, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. And I know, I guarantee you, that there's some people who came in here today, they're sitting here right now, that you're either in the middle of a broken heart, or you're just coming out of one, or perhaps you're heading into one. And the question is, is like, where is God in all of this? He's there. He's there. Because Jesus knows the skeptic. We want to be known. It drives what we do. Is it beautiful today to know that even if you don't know him, he knows you and he wants you. He's pursuing you. He's not afraid and he knows what he's getting into. I love that. That's the kind of Jesus I want to know. We see in the word that God pursues us through his people and maybe you're here today because someone who loves God and believes that he is pursuing us, found you. Maybe they were friends. Maybe you saw something online. Maybe we're in a relationship. Maybe we're buddies. Maybe we're friends. Uh, maybe someone invited you. God is pursuing us through his people, and that's why we exist as a church. We exist to pursue people, and not in a weird way, but just to show them that God is intentional in his love towards us. We also see that God pursues us through his creation, through his creation, Romans chapter 1 shows us that the universe speaks of a designer. It's complex, it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's held in glorious balance. And Romans chapter 1 says that the reason the mountains are gorgeous and Mount Hood is shaped like an arrow is because it's pointing to God, that the sunsets and the moon and the stars in the sky, the complexities of who you are and how you're crafted and how you're made speak to a beautiful designer. 
Um, people are stumbling over the knowledge of God all of the time, if they're honest with themselves. Um, I am big into podcasts. I don't know if you guys like them, but there's one that I love to listen to. It's called This American Life, and it's put out by NPR. And a couple of weeks ago, I was on a bit of a road trip, and I was listening to a podcast, and the title was called Fermi's Paradox, and it was a discussion between two physicists. And that's about as close as I'm ever going to get to a meaningful conversation that I understand with a physicist. Um, but it was great. And Fermi's paradox essentially is a question. And it says, okay, if the universe really is so big, and there really are trillions of stars, and there have been billions of years, then surely we're not alone in the universe. Surely there's alien life somewhere, like Star Wars, Luke Skywalker's real. Like, that's essentially what Fermi's paradox says. And scientists are kind of like broaching this subject all the time, like surely, surely we are not the only ones that had formed in this like cosmic expanse of a universe. But Fermi's paradox goes a step further and says, if they're out there, where are they? Why haven't we heard from them? It's a dilemma. And I listened to these two physicists begin to discuss that, and they really begin to calculate the chances of human life forming by chance. And they really found that mathematically, and they're just discussing this back and forth, they're totally not believers, um, they're not even trying to have a conversation about religion of any sort, and they're like, mathematically, it's so impossible that we're here. And so one, uh, one interviewer turned to the scientist and said, are you admitting that God might exist, the universe is constantly pointing back to this idea of a creator. God is pursuing us through his creation, and God pursues us through his word. God pursues us through his word. I love this passage in Romans 8, 37. It says, knowing all things, and in the Bible, all means all, and that's all it means. Let's read that again. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a third thing that we see in this text, and that's the skeptic becomes a believer after a compelling encounter. The skeptic becomes a believer after a compelling encounter. After hearing about the fig tree, Nathaniel's like blown away. He just has that moment that so many of us have had with God. Like, God, how did you know that? How did you show up in the middle of that circumstance? Um, I've had a lot of friends who've had moments like that. I've had moments like that. To be honest with you, when I debate a skeptic, I'm so happy to drop the debate and just have a conversation. And in my conversation, I am so happy to stir over things like why the resurrection is compelling in its historicity, why the Bible is so compelling in just the way it's preserved through the time. I think there's so many great answers, and I love to listen to scholars who discuss that. But that's never the reason that I'm a believer in Jesus. The reason that I'm a believer in Jesus is because I've had so many real encounters with Jesus. Not the idea, but the person. And that's what we see here. You can debate about what happened to Nathaniel after, after Jesus gave his life for us and rose again. There's some scholars who say he traveled to India as a missionary, and while he was there, he was beaten with rods, scourged, and beheaded. 
But whatever we know is that Nathaniel walked away from this moment changed. Not just convinced, not just intrigued, but changed. I have a friend named Paul, and Paul would come to church um, when I was in a former ministry with um, like a necklace on with spikes all over it. And he would wear all black, and um, he had black fingernails, and he was always looking for a woman. And I was like, well, you look a little prickly, buddy, but you know, she's out there. She's out there. And Paul's a great guy. Um, But Paul had an incredible story. I said, how did you meet Jesus? Why are you here? And he's like, I grew up in an abusive home. I had no reason to know God. In fact, I hated God. I ran from him as, as far as I could, and I said I didn't believe in him, but really I was so angry at him. Of course I believed in God. I just hated him. I hated him. And one day I just realized life wasn't working, and I picked up a Bible, and the whole time I was reading it, it was like a spiritual battle surrounding me. And I just began to read the book of Romans, and reading the book of Romans, something happened, and God spoke to me, and it was real, and I could never deny it, and I'll never be the same. I gave my life to Jesus, and he's changed me. I have another friend by the name of Chris White, who I love to tell his story. He actually called me yesterday and donated to our ministry, and it just blew me away when people get involved. We don't even really ask for guys like that to do it. He just loves what's happening here. But Chris's story is so compelling to me because he um, was a drug addict in Atlanta. He was running in some really tough neighborhoods with some really tough individuals. And he basically was at the end of his rope. He cashed out a ton of money from his bank account. He bought a ton of drugs. He went to a pay-by-the-week hotel. He surrounded himself with alcohol and drugs. And he just began to go on this bender. And one night, he realized how desperate he was, that he was in a life-or-death moment. And that night, he says, and I have a video of it. I'll show it to you sometime. He said, I cried out to Jesus and said, if you're real, you have to change me. He said, I, woke, I went to bed an addict. I woke up saved. I woke up changed. And, and some people have glorious moments like that. Some people wrestled through addiction with Jesus walking beside them for years. But Chris has transformed and changed. We hear stories like that, and it reminds us that it's not just the Nathaniels in the world 2,000 years ago that are meeting Jesus. It's people just like you and me. I have another friend of Rich named Rich. And Rich uh, used to be uh, an atheist evangelist. He would stand out on a college campus with a sign advocating for people to turn away from faith and turn towards atheism. I've never heard anything like it. And through conversation, uh, Rich just was allowed to be a skeptic in a safe place. And he found that it was okay not just to have easy answers, that it was okay to come with tough questions. And over time, Rich met Jesus. And I just remember asking Rich, like, you still have a lot of friends who are atheists. And he's like, oh, yeah, a lot of friends. And I was like, what do you tell them? Like, how do you say, like, I used to advocate atheism, but now Jesus is cool. Like, how does that conversation go? And he just began to tear up, and um, he knocked over a thing, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> he just teared up, and he goes, you know, Aaron, the best way I can describe it is it's like I'm standing in the middle of this river, and it's refreshing, and it's beautiful, and my friends are up there on the riverbank, and I'm just, like, motioning for them to come in. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy because they just don't even believe that the river is real. And my message is, just come and see. Just come and see. The fourth thing that we see today is that Jesus loves belief. Jesus loves belief. You kind of know that, right? 
believers. I mean, that's what we call ourselves. I was having a bit of a philosophical discussion with some friends this week, like wrestling through this passage. It's okay if the pastor has questions too. And I was like, why is that the thing? Like, why is belief the thing? You know, why couldn't it be like, find a magic key? You know, why couldn't it be go on a quest? Prove yourself. Why is belief? Because we see that Jesus has an emotional response to the belief of Nathaniel. We see other times when, when Jesus encounters people, and he's never impressed with their social status. He's never impressed with, like, the amount of money they have. He's never impressed with the things that he'd done. Jesus is always, he stops in his tracks when he encounters belief. Why is that the thing? Well, I'll leave it to you to figure out. Tell me next week. But as I'm starting to process, I think maybe that if God is true and God is real, then our belief simply aligns our posture with reality. That's it. And it's like refreshing to see that if God is true and God is real, then when we believe, we are suddenly taking ourselves pointed in a different direction, lining up with the reality of the universe. So I think maybe that's why we're clicking into place. We're clicking into purpose. We're opening ourselves up for something bigger, for something real. But I also, I had another dimension as I was thinking through this. See, that would make sense if God was real and God was true, but there's another dimension. What if God is good? What if God is good and everything else isn't? What if there really is light and there really is dark? Because if God is real and God is true, then it seems like he would be casually impressed with those who believe. Great, you lined up. Awesome. For everybody else, do your thing. But yet we see this emotion coming from God, this anger coming from God when we turn away from him. Where does all of that come from? Is he just like this judgy dude in the sky? Well, only if he isn't good. But the Bible says that God is good. I just began to think about this from the perspective of a father. I have a three-year-old daughter back in the childcare room, probably eating every snack they have. Um, she is weird with those mints that we put out in the lobby. I'm glad that some of you got some before she got to them. But I have such a protective heart towards my daughter. See, God has this, um, this story that he tells us, that he is good and there is one in this world who isn't good. There is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That the nature of God is good and light, and the nature of the enemy is death, destruction, and evil. See, I wouldn't mind if my daughter chose my wife over me. In fact, she does sometimes. Daddy, I don't love you today. I love mom. And I'm like, great point. She is a better human. She's prettier. She's cooler. She has a better singing voice. She's a Disney princess. Come to life. And we get to have her in our home. I get it. So I'd be pretty neutral. If my daughter picked my wife over me, no big deal. But what if my daughter picked a pedophile over me? Whew. What if there was a stranger who offered her candy it was fun in the moment, but I knew him. I knew what he was up to. I knew his intentions were to hurt and to break her, to use and abuse her, to steal her innocence, to steal her joy. Would I be neutral in pursuing my daughter? No, I wouldn't be neutral. What would I do if my daughter chose him over me? Well, I know what I would do. I would call out after her. I would probably set rules and say, hey, don't go with that guy. Don't listen to his tricks. Don't listen to the things that he's telling you. And, and as we look over the story of the Bible, we see God giving preservative commandments to keep us from going after the wicked one. 
And then I would probably, like, if she broke those rules and went anyway, I would probably be so hurt and so angry. I would, like, call out after her. I'd be like, no, don't go. And I would be so filled with emotion and so brokenhearted as she went with someone I knew was going to hurt her. But what if she wanted to come back? Would I take her back? Of course I would. Of course I would. I would bind her up in my arms. I would hug her. I would do everything I could to see her healed. And I would do anything, anything to see her not go there again. But what if she went again? What if she went again? And what if she was captured And sexual slavery is a huge thing in the city. It's like real life. And what if she was placed in some kind of bondage and someone else had a claim of ownership over her life? What would I do? Anything. Anything. What would I do to get her back? Anything to get her back. Would I lay my life down to get her back? You better believe I'd lay my life down to get her back. And so the story of the Bible seems arbitrary unless God is a good father. And then it makes sense. It all makes sense. And that's why Jesus loves belief. Because you're loving a good thing. You're loving the good one. And you're opening your heart up for more. So bring your questions. He's not afraid. If he's real, he's not afraid. If he's good, he's not afraid. And the Bible says, just come and see. Just come and see. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.